The following audio is from a sermon series called Recalibrate. In this sermon series, we take a look at the DNA of Sacred City Church, the identities and rhythms that are given to us in the gospel, and how we live together in community and on mission. For more information on Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Before the age of cell phones, there were these bizarre time-telling apparatuses, things that people would wear on their their wrists, these these analog wristwatches. Not not this, you know, like a lot of Apple Watch or, you know, like a digital watch, not that. I'm talking like the old gears and springs and and little mechanisms. And it's old technology, but it was genius technology. So many little pieces working together in unison to tell time with precision. Now, many of these watches that were built, especially way back in the day, these these watches would last for generations, right? These would be family heirlooms that would be passed down with each generation. Now, given that these were complex machines that were worn, a lot of times what would happen is that they would experience some sort of a jolt, right? They'd get hit on a doorway as you walk through or you hit it on the countertop. And, and what would happen is uh, the gears would, would kind of get off. Something inside internally would, would cause the, the, the watch to not function correctly, at least not function to its uh, optimum functionality. Now, with this, just because the, the gears kind of get off or a pin comes loose or something, the, the issue wasn't necessarily that the watch didn't work, right? It's not like you had to throw it away and, and, and find a new one. What would have to happen is you take it to a watchmaker, they'd tinker with it, maybe they could reset it. Usually it was the, the chronograph timer that would, would get off, it wouldn't reset to zero. And so you take it to a watchmaker and they would, they would tinker and, and get it, they would recalibrate it to its optimum functionality. Now, for me, as a pastor, acquiring this building was a bit of a jolt. It was a good jolt, right? It was, it was an incredible gift that God gave us. But when it came to our, our vision and our mission as a church, right, what God has called us to do is a bit of a jolt. It threw me off a little bit. And I believe that as, as the leader here, uh, it, it also had some rippling effects with the rest of the church, that, that things got off. And maybe you've experienced your own bit of a jolt, 
right? Maybe it's within your job or your family. There's been a jolt or hardship. Things have caused a little bit of, of dysfunction. Not, not that the whole thing's falling apart, but, but things just aren't clicking the way they ought to do. And maybe you're, you're one of those people who's like, you know what? I can't recall a time when my life functioned correctly, right? I don't even know what optimum functionality is. Now, that's a, a great question to ask, right? What is, as human beings, what is optimum functionality and what does it look like? And, and what I think when we look at this question and we, we really just boil it down to two things, it comes down to these two basic human things, human pieces of human life. And it's when relationships and purposes merge together. Let me... Use a football analogy here. I know it's the last day that I can really get my football analogies in here. When a football team, for a football team to function optimally, right, two things need to happen. One, they need to function together as a team. Right? If you have a bunch of hot shots on the team and they're, they're trying to do their own thing, function as individuals, the relationship's not there. They're not going to work together very well. And, and, and the other piece that's essential for them to, to function to their maximum uh, being is to have a shared goal, right? The shared common purpose. It's when the, the relationships are there and when they share the common purpose that the football team comes together and basically becomes the New England Patriots, I think. This is rooted in a profoundly spiritual truth that we were created imago Dei. That means in the image of God, that all humans, all people, were created to bear traits that God has. Now, God is one in three persons. Okay, God is Trinitarian. There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in these three persons exist perfect, enjoyable relationship. That God himself is relationship. And so being created image of God, that we are created by relationship and we are created for relationship. But also in God and being created imago Dei is that we're created for God's purpose. That God has one purpose in himself. It is to display his glory in all things. That's what the chief thing of creation was all about. God, God was showing his glory in creation. So by creating us, he had a purpose to show what he was like. And he is showing what he's like in and through us. So we are created for relationship and we are created to share in God's purpose. To, to reflect that glory and to share it with others. And so to, to, re, to neglect relationship or purpose... Right, to lose perspective on one of those things is to live a diminished life. It's to live lonely, maybe. Right? If we're disengaged from relationships, we're, we're probably lonely. It's, to, it's to, to lead a life that's bored. Right? If we don't have a purpose, it's easy to just sit around and veg out. So we can be lonely or bored, complacent, detached. In other words... Our life is not lived to the fullest. We're missing out on something. So to use our vocabulary here at Sacred City Church, to, to, to live in optimum functionality is to make disciples in community and on mission, right? To make disciples. That's the purpose. So we're living in community and on mission. So there's the relationship. To live in community and on relationship is to bring relationships and purpose together. As a church, this is what we're all about. 
Right? We exist to make disciples who make disciples. And, and the church, I think there has been in, in recent decades a misconception that the process of making disciples happens in a classroom or through some program. Right? That is not the case. The only way to make disciples is in community and on mission. That's how Jesus did it. That's how the apostles did it. That's how the first early church did it, and that's how we as a church do it here. And this is the chief focus for us. Our number one priority in our mission is to make disciples. And from making disciples, we plant churches. And from planting churches, our city is renewed. But the reality here, right, this idea of of optimum functionality, to live in community and on mission, it's a lot of work, right? If you're in a, a missional community, you can attest to this. This means that there is a radical reprioritization of your life around God and his church and his mission. This means you exert energy, time, resources, emotional capacity to things that probably are not in your natural inclinations. Now, if I'm honest with you, I feel this too, right? I, if, if anybody should be hyped up about living in community and on mission, it's like, it's like my job to do this, right? But there are nights when it's a Wednesday night, I've got missional community on Wednesday nights where I'm just feeling exhausted. Right? I, I don't want to do missional community tonight. I got this stuff going on. You know, maybe I've had a long week. I feel taxed emotionally, relationally. Or maybe I'm just lazy, you know? I'd just rather sit and watch TV. There are nights where doing this, or days, or or weeks, or months even, where living in community on mission just seems so difficult. And without the right motivation, living in community and on mission is unsustainable. Without the correct motivation, you cannot keep doing this because this is a high calling in life. In fact, to, to try to keep pressing on and on and on and on could be counterproductive for your walk with Jesus. Right, if you don't have the right motivation. It's like my experience with the gym. I try to go to the gym on a regular basis. I'm not great at it. I don't like going to the gym. But when I have the right motivation, right, and it's not just the motivation of, of you know, five more pounds and a personal record. Right? When I have the right motivation of a healthier lifestyle, being around for, for 10 more years with, uh, with my wife and my kids, right, with the right motivation, I can kind of grind out what, what I need to do to keep my fitness up. And with the right motivation, not only is it sustainable, but it actually becomes enjoyable. And so the question is, what is a sustainable motive for us in living in community and mission? Right? What, can, what can set you on path and keep you there to grind it out even when things are tough? Now, I've got two primary shows that I love to watch on Netflix. I love to watch The Office. Uh, I feel like a lot of my life I can relate to The Office and everything kind of goes through that filter. And the other one is Parks and Rec. And, and I was watching Parks and Rec this week, and, and Ron Swanson's one of the characters on that show, super straight shooter, black and white kind of a guy. And he says that there are only three ways to motivate someone. Money, fear, and hunger. Money, fear, and hunger. He says those are the three, three things that can motivate a person. And, and 
I don't agree with him completely, but, but he is on to something here that there are intrinsic and extrinsic desires that we have that motivate us. Intrinsic desires, meaning internally, there's something inside of us that compels us to, to pursue something. And extrinsically, there's rewards typically, some sort of external factor that makes us move toward a goal. So for example, money would be an ext- extrinsic uh, a motivator. Right, food, something from outside of ourselves, an award to, to get for our labors. Now, this is why we go to work, right? We work hard to get a paycheck. We work hard so we can get food on the table, right? That's an extrinsic motivator. And really, if you look at it, this is how a lot of our society is set up, right? If you do good, you get paid, right? Or this is how we even parent sometimes, right? If you listen and obey to me while we're in the store, I'll give you a cookie, this is how we motivate with, with, these, with these external rewards. In fact, I think this is a lot of pe- how a lot of people look at their faith, like look at religion. That if you do the right things, if you live the right way, like God says, then the reward is heaven for you. But scripture says that all motives come from the heart. All motives come from heart. That even means that, that underneath the extrinsic, the external motivators, the things that we want, money or food or whatever it is, there's something underneath of it internally that's motivating us to go after it. There's this underlying motive, right? For example, the desire for money might be an internal desire to have the appearance of success, to be competent. Food Externally, might be motivated by an underlying desire for comfort. Now, Tom Brady, I'm trying to double up on my football metaphors and analogies here. Tom Brady, he is likely to win his sixth Super Bowl tonight. And if you think he's doing it for the money, if you think he's doing it to have another ring, that's absolutely not the case. There's something deeper that's motivating him to keep on playing football, to keep doing what he's doing. It's these intrinsic motives that drive us. Now, what do these look like? The, the intrinsic motivators, these internal motivators, it's the desire to feel valued, to feel accepted, to be highly esteemed by peers, to be seen as competent, to be seen as capable, right? All of these things, these are heart language. This is speaking to our identity, who we are as a person, they say something about us. It says something about what we're worth, what our, our, our dignity. This is heart language stuff. And so if we look at this, if we look at the motivators, it can't be an external motivator that keeps us on mission, in community, on mission. It's got to be something inside of us. See, the motive must be internal. The reward for heaven, the reward of heaven by itself is not sufficient in sustaining us in community and on mission. It's not. We need a motivation that gets to our deepest longings and leverages them in a life-giving way. Now, the key word there is life-giving. Something that brings us joy, hope, Freedom, right? Something that allows us to live life to the fullest. But because we live in a fallen world, the most common motivators that, we're, that we encounter are products of the fall, right? Fear, guilt, and shame. And when you think about it, 
Fear, guilt, and shame describe what happens in the fall in Genesis chapter 3, right? When sin entered the world, if you remember, Satan, God made this perfect place, the perfect garden for Adam and Eve to live in. Everything was wonderful. Adam and Eve would walk with God in the cool of the day. God gave him a purpose, right, to to tend to the garden, to cultivate it, to see that it it would flourish. And he had this close relationship with them, that Adam and Eve knew each other. They were naked and unashamed, that they walked with God. They had this perfect relationship in the garden. And then we see Satan come in as a serpent. And when Satan comes on the scene, he leverages fear to get Adam and Eve to start doubting God's goodness. He says, did God really say? He's he's generating in them this fear that God is holding out on you. And Adam and Eve, as you know, they bought in on the lie, right? They, they took the fruit that God said, don't, don't eat from this tree. If you, if you eat from this tree, surely you will die. Yet here they are sinking their teeth into it. And in that moment, creation starts to unravel, right? Not only is fear now a factor, but we see the sense of guilt set in. They, they disobeyed God and driven by their guilt and shame, they hide, now, guilt is this feeling that we get when we've done something wrong, right? When we failed, right? When, when we don't do something right, we feel this sense of, of guilt, which then produces fear, right? They know, if I eat of this tree, surely I'll die. They know that there's a punishment coming, and so they hide away from God. They, they try to avoid the punishment that's coming, and so they, they tuck themselves away, minimize their wrongdoing, trying to dodge the punishment. Yet at the same time as they do this, there's still this, this feeling of shame that they can't bat away. Now, now, guilt and shame are similar, but they're different because guilt is, is the feeling of I did something wrong. Shame is the feeling of there is something wrong with me. Shame says I'm messed up. Right? This is why Adam and Eve went and they made for themselves these little uh, fig leaves, these little loincloths, tried to cover themselves up. There's something wrong with me. Now everyone deals with this. Everyone is familiar with fear, guilt, and shame. We have inherited these things from our first father. That is Adam. That's how scripture speaks of him. That because of original sin, that we, have, we all live in a fallen world where these things are prominent. Now, if, if we understand these things in a redemptive way, fear, guilt, and shame can be valuable emotions that drive us toward our Heavenly Father. Don't be mistaken about that. But more often, we, we misunderstand and underestimate the powerful and dark motivators that shame, fear, and guilt are. In the hands of the enemy, these are dangerous weapons to keep us far from God. Now, some people, it's, it's pretty obvious that we, we struggle with fear, guilt, and shame, right? It's, you can say, yep, uh, that's me. But for, for some of us, it's like, I don't really, I don't necessarily think I do that. Actually, in fact, I'm, I'm that way. I, I, uh, I started seeing a counselor uh, last month, and, and I'm just kind of working through some of the stuff that I, I'm dealing with on an internal sense. And, and he goes, you know what, Sam? I think you're driven by more guilt than anything else. You always have this constant critique in your head that you should be this. And I think we all have that to some degree. 
right? This constant self-critique. You should be this. And when we don't live up to that, there's this sense of guilt, right? I messed up. I did something wrong. And shame sets in. There's something wrong with me. And whether we can realize it or not, we all face this, this prominent imprint of fear, guilt, and shame. And it's so tricky to navigate because sometimes, a lot of times, especially if, if you uh, have a, a religious tendencies, these things are what's motivating you to do the good things in your life. Right, guilt drives you to go to MC because you know if you don't show up, you're gonna get that text message from a friend who says, missed you today. Oh, now I feel guilty. Fear tells you, don't break the rules because you'll get punished for them. All right, so I gotta be a good boy. Shame says, everybody else is doing this. Everybody else is capable. What's wrong with you? Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Get it done, do it. And so we can see how these things motivate us, but in a, a life-robbing way. In fact, a lot of people, their, their entire relationship with God and the church is driven, even with other people, is driven by fear, guilt, and shame. And it's a travesty. Because this is not at all what God intended for his people to live like. God's desire was for his people to have life to the fullest, right? To be, to be in relationship, to not be separated or, or divided or, or at strain with, with other people or even with God. He wanted us to be together. So listen, church. Fear, guilt, and shame are not sustainable motivators for living life in community and on mission because they themselves are not life-giving, right? If we are going to attain optimum functionality, we must find a better motivator than fear, guilt, and shame because as products of the fall, these things are only there to rob us from a full life and keep us from living in community and on mission. In fact, what Ephesians 2 has to say is that life after the fall isn't even living life at all. Take a look with me, would you? Open up your Bibles. I know that's kind of a long introduction, but that's what we've got to do to set us up today. Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there's a pew Bible in front of you. It's on page 568. I want you to look at it. It's going to be on the screen so you know I'm not making this stuff up. Let's take a look at verse 1. The Apostle Paul says this, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He says, you, are, you were dead. You, you weren't just living a diminished life. You weren't just trying your best and failing. You were dead in your sins and trespasses. And he says, in which you once walked following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once live in the passions of our flesh, carrying on out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This passage shows us just how far down the fall in Genesis 3 took us Right. One moment we were with God walking in the cool of the day and enjoying perfection. And the next moment we're dead. 
following our sinful desires, following the pattern of the world, rebelling against God under the influence of Satan. Now, this doesn't mean we're Satanists, right? It doesn't mean we're, we're worshiping Satan. It just means that Satan's schemes work to deter us from worshiping God the way we were ought to worship. Now, this isn't just true about really bad people, right? This isn't just true of the Larry Nassers and the Adolf Hitlers of the world. This is a truth about everyone. Now, a lot of people, when they hear this, they want to bat this away, right? You know, I just feel like I misunderstood. I'm really not that bad of a person. You know, I am in church after all. But the thing about this statement is that Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. Paul's writing to Christians, right? He's speaking to everyone. He says in verse 2 that you once walked, that you were once sons of disobedience among the rest of the world. And there in verse 3, he shows us that depending on what our desires, depending on what our motivations are, they will either lead us to life or to death. You see, he says the sinful desires of the flesh, living by the fallen motivations of our mind and our body, brings us to God's wrath. Now, if you contrast that with Galatians 3.11, where, where we're told that the righteous live, that those are your choices, life or, or death. And so it seems that when we look at this, the solution is to find the right motivations, right? To, to realign our hearts the right way. It seems simple enough. I'll just start to, to desire to love God, right? Do an internal course correction. But you'll see here, that's impossible. Why? Because dead people can't choose. Dead people can't choose to make their heart beat, let alone what, should, what they should make their hearts desire. Dead people can't choose what clothes they're going to wear or what they're going to do for that day. And Ephesians 2.1 starts off by saying that you were dead in your sins and trespasses. Not, not necessarily physically, though the physical death would come, but he's speaking of a spiritual death, that we had been separated from God. If God is life, we had been removed from him, therefore removed from life. We were disjointed and alienated from him. Now, every other religion, every other pseudo-religion or, or modern uh, psychology will either try to make the case that either things really aren't that bad, right? Things are a little bad, but, but there's still a little bit of good in you. You can pull yourself up by the bootstraps and make an effort and get after it, and you could do it. Or that we're able to change our own destiny, right? If you just look deep inside yourself, you'll be able to tap into the best version of you. Now, when you look at this from a biblical perspective, this is just a new twist on the old lie that you don't need God. Right? That's, what, that's what the serpent was telling Adam and Eve. God's holding out on you. You don't need, it. You don't need God. You can be wise yourself. So it's just an old twist or a new twist on an old lie. Because what, what the Bible tells us is the reality of ourselves is there's not a fiber in our being that can contribute to one ounce of self-help or change. Sin has depleted all of our resources. 
It has placed us eternally at odds with God, headed for destruction, facing God's wrath. This means we're Lois Lane without Superman, Daphne without Fred, Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy without Aslan. We were utterly incapable, unable to escape our own peril. This is game over, lights out, goodbye. Now, if you don't see how high the stakes are, then you'll never experience the relief that good news brings. Right? Not only will you avoid the reality of your situation, you will pass up the good news that is available to you. See, if you look at it, verses one through three is a lot of bad news, right? And we see verse four, there's a turning point. The good news, well, what's the good news? The good news of the Bible is that God has done something. He doesn't wait for us to get our act together. He doesn't watch us floundering in sin and try to get ourselves together. He steps in and intervenes for us because we could not. And I think if you, if you really believe verses one through three is true about yourself, then the next two words in verse four are the best words you'll ever hear. Take a look. He says, but God, this is good news, friends. I have this tattooed on my body. I have those two words tattooed on me because this is such good news to me that God has done something. Take a look. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. See, the good news is while we were completely incompetent and dead, God was fully able to make us alive. See, and Paul says the way that this is accomplished is exclusively by God's grace. That grace is at play here. Now, grace is the undeserved favor of God. Actually, he expounds on it here. He says, when he says, by grace you have been saved, that's a little caveat there in verse 5. But then he goes on in verse 8 and 9, he says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. This is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. See, salvation is done completely by God. There's not a shred of human effort exerted to accomplish your salvation. Everything rides entirely on God's grace. Now, a lot of people tend to think of, of salvation in this way, right? Right? Think of like a lifeguard and a swimmer who's getting pulled under by the undertow, right? Sin being the undertow, getting pulled under. Now they think of, of, of salvation as God being the lifeguard who runs out and throws a little life preserver out and we just latch onto it, right? But that is unbiblical way to think of salvation. Salvation does not have to do with us grabbing onto anything. It's God grabbing onto us. That we were dead in the water. We were floating out there without a hope and God runs out in the water. He pulls us out from our sin and he breathes life into us. That's a biblical version of salvation. And the reason why this is the case it's so that we would not boast. See, one of the greatest, one of the most visible things about a Christian should be humility. There's no way to boast in themselves. They know that they didn't do anything to grab onto the life preserver. It was God who grabbed onto them. And so it's a Christian who, 
who doesn't get puffed up and say, well, look what I did. A Christian says, look what God did. Look what God did to save me when I was dead in my sins. Now, it's clear that God saved us by grace, right? That's what Paul says here, that we were saved by grace. But how exactly? What is the manifestation of grace? How did God go about rescuing us? Well, that's the person and work of Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, He who knew no sin was counted as sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. This is how God goes about saving us, that Jesus takes our place so that we can have his. Jesus saw us trapped in our sin, waiting the wrath of God to, to, to come at us like a, a, a freight train, and Jesus stands in the way and takes it himself. Right? That's what it was when Jesus went to the cross. But in taking our place, he also gives us his. Martin Luther called this the great exchange, right? Where where Jesus takes our spot, we take his. The punishment of sin, Jesus took that on himself on the cross. And he seats us with God in heavenly places. That's what what he's getting at here in, let's see, where is it at? In verse 6. He says that... He's seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. But Jesus going to the cross is only the first part of how God saved you. See, if Jesus just died for your sins, it means nothing. Right? 1 Corinthians 15, 17 says that if, if Christ isn't raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. What that means is there has to be resurrection. It wasn't enough for Jesus just to face death for you. He had to defeat it. He had to conquer it. In Acts 2.42, while Peter is preaching here at Pentecost, he makes it clear that God has raised Christ up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for Jesus to be held down by death any longer. See, Jesus conquered death. In power, Jesus conquered death. God rose him from the dead. Ephesians 1.20 says, And God seated Jesus at his right hand, and therefore we are with him there. That's the whole thing. That that if Christ is raised up, then we too, see, verse 6, and raised us up with him together in Christ. And all of this is done, not because we're some sort of fine specimen that God just had to have, See, this is done to demonstrate the immeasurable riches of God's grace and his kindness towards us. See, God finds, this is the kindness of God, where he finds broken, weak, dead people and he makes them alive. He restores them and makes them victorious over their worst enemy. This is the amazing grace that we sang about today, that God would exert his own power to rescue undeserving sinners. And a lot of times when we think about the gospel, we think this is something that I just believe once, right? I believe that Jesus died for my sins and rose again and now, I'm, now I can go to heaven. But you see, the gospel is something that, that, yes, we believe it once. There's this initial time we put our faith in it and we trust in it. But the gospel is something that we come back to day in and day out, moment by moment. When, when Peter is, is right, or not Peter, Paul, when he's writing to, the, to this first letter to the Corinthians, he starts chapter 15 where he's talking about how the gospel is of first importance. 
the ultimate thing about the church, what he says, he starts out here, he says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, right, in which you received. So there's that first time. Yes, I believe the gospel the first time in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to it. See, the gospel is our daily bread. It is what sustains us. You are saved by it, yes, but you are saved day by day by day as you hold fast to the gospel. And what that means here, it means that God is transforming you. God is changing you through the gospel to look more like Jesus. In fact, if you go back to Ephesians 2, verse 10 really shows this. He says that we are his workmanship, right? That's God handcrafting us to make us look more like Jesus. He's chiseling away the old version of you. He's chiseling away the dead man and leaving a new man in its place. People who are recreated in the gospel, people who are a, a new creation, right? The, the old is gone, the new has come. And what this means is that we are a new humanity. But no longer are we driven by fear and guilt and shame like our first father and mother, Adam and Eve, that we have been remade. To circle back around to the discussion of motive, right? Why, the question is, why would God do all this? What's God's motive in the first place? Well, verse four says, everything that God has done is driven by this. Take a look, verse four. Being rich in mercy, here it is, because of the great love with which he loved us. That's his motive right there. You see, God has, it says God has this great love. So it's like, He's a reservoir of love, but he doesn't just hold it back. Right? He's not like a dam that, that's blocking the flow of love downstream. God is full of love, yet he's pouring it out. It's like a torrent coming at us. That his love has been set upon us. This is the life-giving motive that we need. You see, it's God's love that ultimately leads us to life with Christ. Not just, not just to heaven, Right? Heaven, heaven is absolutely a beautiful blessing that God gives us. But the, the thing that God desires most to give us is life with Christ, to be joined together once again with him. We go from being enemies of God to being his children, all because of God's love. And because God had first loved us, now we have a new motive. Right? That's that's That's... The whole thing here. When God first loves, he's already given us the motivation. Fear, guilt, and shame are our motivations to chase what we don't yet have. But here God gives us the motivation of his love and he pours it out. There's nothing you can do to earn it, to become more presentable, to make yourself more deserving of it. God unleashes it. Because of this, because we are loved and accepted at our worst, this is a compelling motivation for us to love. See, if, if we're thinking, if God could do this for me, if, and I know how bad my sins are, if God could do this for me, that means he's able to do it for my neighbors, my friends, my coworkers. Like no one is beyond this. And so it is God 
who by his love brings us into community. He brings us back into his family. We, we sang about it. He adopted us. I was an orphan lost at the fall, but then here come God came. He set his love on me and adopted me into his family. He brings us back to the family, but then he also, as a family, sends us out on mission. He says the family isn't done growing yet. All right, that's one of the things that I love about Sacred City Church. We're a young, a young church Right? We've got a lot of growing families. There's people who are going, you know what? Our family isn't done yet. That's what God's saying. Our family isn't done growing yet. And so it's God's love that motivates us to live in community and on mission as, as, a, as a family of missionaries. Other people can get on this. See, that's what all those back pews are back there are about. Right? All of those empty pews represent people who aren't here yet. They can get in on this too. And so it's only when the gospel is before us on a daily basis, reminding us of the real love that God has for us, it is then when we are opened up to hit stride in our optimum functionality. Right? This is what sticks us in community and on mission. This is what keeps us in community and on mission. But even more than function, you know, I think as a society we put a lot of value on function, what we can do. But God doesn't look at us as purely on basis of function. See, God looks at us, I want you to be, I want you to be united with Christ. I want you to be alive in Christ. I want you to be so aware of the love that I have for you. See, and when we live in that awareness, that's when function comes out. Right? You don't have to tell somebody who's just blown away by the love of God, you don't have to tell them to love other people. It just flows out of them. And so it's our desire to first be, to be loved, to be known, to be in Christ and be alive with him, to be saved. And it's once we are there in that spot, that's when God sends us out. That's when we function like we ought to. Proclaiming the love and saving grace of our Savior to a perishing world. See, at Sacred City, this is the foundation of everything we do. We say we're a gospel-centered missional church. See, without the gospel anchoring us in God's love, there's why be on mission? What good news is there to tell anybody of? But when we're secured and when we know where we stand with God because of Christ and what he's done on our behalf, we're freed up to live in this way. Now, this morning, we're going to come to the Lord's table. And we're going to take the elements in our hands, the body that was broken for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And as we do so, know that Jesus was broken, his body was broken, his blood was shed so that the body of Christ could come together. Right? The gospel would unify us together in community and on mission. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your gospel and your good word that you have worked in a supernatural way that we were completely unable to do on our own and you have lavished your love upon us. We are so grateful. We are so grateful that not a work, not a thing that we have done has earned this. You loved us because you love us. And so it's in the gospel we rejoice that your love has been set on us, that you have made us alive, you have made us a new creation. Father, would you help us to live this way?
Will you help us to believe the gospel, push away our doubts and our fears, and set for us faith and hope in your work? And not just a one-time deal, Father. If there are people in the room who, who do not yet believe, I pray that your spirit would act in a way that would regenerate their heart to, be, to soften towards you. But Father, I pray for all of us, we would day by day come to the gospel. Trust in your work. And rejoice in what Christ has done for us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.